Thanks for listening to Bezier. Bezier is sponsored by Superhigh, online courses for code, design, and product management. Superhigh's courses can be done in your own home at your own pace. I've been a Superhigh student since 2017 and have gone from being a designer feeling alienated by the should designers code discourse to building my own sites and now even selling web design services. My favorite part of Superhigh is the community of learners. As a Superhigh student, you're added to this huge community of all the other Superhigh students. It's filled with inspiring people from all over the world in all different places in their careers. I've gotten work there, I found podcast guests there, and even made in-person friends, all because of Superhigh. It's easy to get started. There's an online code editor. You can do it on your own schedule. There's built-in community of learners. It's got everything you need. Start learning to code, design, or product manage today at superhigh.com. I like to have my guests introduce themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Simon Sotello. I am a designer, an illustrator, active community organizer, and I live in Portland, Oregon, and I've spent my whole life on the West Coast here in the United States. And what are your pronouns? She, they. Can you tell us a little bit more about your outside of work activities before we jump into work stuff? My outside of work activities used to be a lot more robust pre-pandemic. I used to go to karaoke every Monday with uh, my friends and it is something that I I miss. You know, I've been to a private room karaoke a couple times over the last couple years, but it's just not the same as like being in front of a group of strangers and like really feeling like a star for three minutes. What's your go-to karaoke song? I feel like that's like a, a sacred thing. It's a very common question, but for someone who would go that often, I actually, like, I have artists that I would do pretty regularly. My absolute, like, most frequent artist that I would sing would be Elton John, like, hands down. Nice. And then I have a handful of other songs that I know I'm really good at, so if I ever felt nervous or felt like I needed to impress a room of very drunk people. I can pull from that, which includes uh, Tom Jones's It's Not Unusual, Sex Laws by Beck. Let's see. Culture Club is also one, a weird amount of, of a small amount of people. Like, I'm very, very surprised by how many people are like, who was that? I'm like, it's, it's the Culture Club. I'm like, it's Boy George. And nothing. So karaoke was a big, big thing I used to do. And outside of work, I used to do a lot of organizing in the like zine and independent publishing communities. Back when I used to live in LA, myself and five of my friends co-founded the LA Zine Fest. And I was organizing with them up until 2015, which is when I moved to Portland. And that was like a second job. <laughs> it, it was a huge, huge, huge part of my life. It was a pretty big event for a group of people to just do in their spare time. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I love finding out that like large organizations like that are just like a couple of people doing it when they've got the time to contribute, which is so cool. Yeah, who don't get paid. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, I guess, the downside. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and then after, once I moved to Portland, I organized with the zine community here for a couple of years before kind of shifting that trajectory and that energy to an organization called AIGA, which stands for 
uh, the American Institute for Graphic Artists. It's a member-based nonprofit that kind of supports mostly graphic designers and typographers and book designers. And I was on their board of directors here at the Portland chapter for four years. I was their first equity and inclusion director. Oh, wow. Really? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I I feel like maybe the AIGA had a little bit of bad press a couple years ago for their lack of of any efforts in (laughs) equity and inclusion. Do you feel like it's gotten better? I I assume that you made it better in Portland. I tried. I have a lot of uh, respect and reverence for all of the local chapters you know again we are another thing i did that did not pay me like the board of directors the local chapters they're all volunteers and they're all doing really really great things incredibly invested in their communities and just really want to see you know creatives and designers succeed and have opportunities and unfortunately it is part of a larger nonprofit, and there is a lot of systemic problems with our nonprofit industrial complex here. <laughs> so I felt like I did what I could at my local level, but I kind of butted heads with a lot of the people at the national level. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, there. I'm just, I have reservations about any kind of like membership-based um, organization, especially one that is a nonprofit. It's just, there's a lot of politics that I don't like. There's a lot of just like the structures that are built into how nonprofits exist and succeed are just suck. They're bad. They're really bad. So, you know, I like to encourage people to get involved and volunteer if they can, but I wouldn't invest too much time into it. I, I appreciate you sharing and being honest about it. As much as you want to, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing your like your zine journey up through Portland. Do you, do you want to go over any of your career path journey that led you to today? So I started my creative career journey in in college. I have a degree in illustration, and about two years after I graduated from college, I ended up getting an internship at an agency down in LA. And it was an experience. (laughs) A lot of the work that we did there was for like movie studios. So a lot of like social campaigns and interactive websites to like promote movies. And it was hard. It was very hard. One problem that I've had or experienced uh, being in agencies is like sometimes a lot of the processes or workflows that they have they still do even though they're maybe not effective or equitable or healthy but it's what we've always done so no we're not going to change it and if you don't like it then maybe this you know industry isn't right for you is what I was told a lot of the times So I couldn't get out of there faster and moved up to Portland and kind of continued to work in the small agency type setting. And even though I learned a lot, because when you're in like the smaller agencies, things aren't as pipelined. I don't know if that's quite the right phrase, but you know, you know, bigger agencies, there are a lot of pipelines and you kind of do that one job really well and 
maybe you can graduate to more responsibility and more work, but you're specialists most of the time. <laughs> and at smaller studios, you get a lot of opportunities to work end to end on a project. And you're kind of required to pick up a lot of skills that you never thought you would because you need to just get the job done. And there's only two people. So I, yeah, continued to work in the small settings and learned a lot of really, I think, valuable skills that I still use in my workflows today. I think overall, though, I haven't had a great experience at an agency, which is why I'm self-employed. I started an agency, but I've never worked at one before. And so I feel like I'm doing a lot of asking those questions of mm. how is it always done, always been done at other agencies? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of refreshing to hear you say, like, sometimes that's relied on a little too much and not for the necessarily benefit of the project or the client or the, the team members, but just because something was always done that way. And it's nice to hear that. I, I, I think I have a similar experience with working in corporations where, oh, we've always mm. done it that way. It's also used <laughs> to its detriment. Yeah. And one of the, I think maybe I'll just say it's like one of the biggest red flags that I had ever heard was someone kind of higher up asking their direct reports to work kind of like a really unethical amount of hours just because when he was our age, he had to do that. And so he just thought it was a good experience to spend an entire night working on a project, like on a fake project. And as, and as awful as that sounds, just that, that broader mentality really, for me, summed up what those dynamics were, where it's just like, these experience shaped me as a designer, so everyone needs to go through them no matter how toxic they are. And it's uh, mentalities like that that have kind of really kept me away from going to larger agencies, really. Like, I really can't fathom the politics at a larger agency. I can barely handle the small ones. What does your day-to-day -day look like? Or as maybe I learned a couple episodes ago, is like, what's your week-to-week -week look like? Because maybe that's like an easier to talk about. Yeah, I have a few, a few things that I do, you know, day-to-day. -day. I have, I've built my routine where I try and exercise in the morning, make my breakfast, have my coffee. And then while I'm eating my breakfast and drinking my coffee, I'm going through emails. And like, usually there's a, a couple, like maybe one or two hours where I'm just processing emails, figuring out how I can break up my schedule and give it to the people who are emailing me about like, you know, mostly meetings. Uh, sometimes if there's, you know, feedback or things that I need to work into later in my day, um, sometimes I'll just, you know, copy and paste those notes into the proper projects or I'll schedule the email to send again later when I'm able to think about it. But my morning is usually mostly housekeeping. And then the rest of my day is it could be meetings. It could be, oh, I got to we got this thing that's launching today or tomorrow, so I got to work on that. Um, deadlines for presentations. All that is, yeah, just what you said. It's a mixed bag. And week to week, I'm just looking at my calendar here, like week to week, it's sometimes kind of as chaotic as my day to day. Lots of meetings, lots of deadlines and presentations. <laughs> and unfortunately, no weekends. Oh, no. 
the freelancer life i i still like two and a half years in i'm still not great at managing my own work-life balance i have like and, and it was it was worse last year it was so bad last year i don't I think a lot of I've I've spoken to other freelancers who just had a, a really really hectic 2021, and I when people ask me like how it is being a self-employed designer, a lot of my answers are usually have this caveat where I'm like I don't know that this is normal though. Like my 2020 was weird. That's kind of when I started freelancing, <laughs> and uh, my 2021 was even weirder just because of the way things had fluctuated because of the pandemic. Yeah, I know a lot of people started freelancing or changed jobs in 2020. And then, yeah, what is normal is ill-defined. And then, but even as much as like people moved houses or cities or whatever during the pandemic, and it's like, it's hard to establish that baseline when everything else is not at baseline. I hope it like actually settles for you at some point in the near future. I hope so. One of my biggest milestones is that I gave myself my evenings back. Nice. <laughs> so I'm baby stepping, baby stepping to evenings and then baby stepping to weekends, ho- hopefully one day. Hopefully soon. It's on the calendar. I'll put it on the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> Don't work today. What kind of clients do you work with? Either as comfortable as you are talking about specific clients or even just genres of clients. Sure, sure. I would say like half of the work that I do comes from contracting with other agencies. Thankfully, uh, my network here in Portland felt pretty like robust. And so I've been able to uh, have a lot of very steady, decently paying work, just kind of being support. And I talked about this with a friend of mine who's the design chair at uh, College of the Canyons in California where she sees this trend that like at the beginning of 2020 we saw hiring freezes and maybe just a little bit of layoffs and the reason the freelancers had a really hectic 2021 is because no one wanted to hire full-time so they just used me to support everything that they were doing and I, I certainly felt that so I contract a lot with agencies And then the other half of my work is doing work for small businesses or startups. So I'm doing a lot of branding packages or rebrands. I'm currently like building up my UX and product portfolio. And the type of clients that I like to work with are just people who have positive or for good missions or the product or service that they're putting out into the world is having a positive impact on people's lives. So I feel very fortunate that those types of clients are finding me. And I feel very, very fortunate that I'm not doing a ton of client chasing. Like I don't, I don't respond to RFPs. I very rarely respond to like job postings or ads. So I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, that's super nice. And I, I would confirm exactly what you said of like, these companies do a round of layoffs. So when the pandemic started just recently, there were another round of tech layoffs. And then a couple months later, they're hiring freelancers because they don't have enough people to do the work, mm-hmm. um, which is an interesting dynamic because the people that are getting laid off are mostly 
freelancing as well. And it's, yeah, I don't know what that looks like in a couple of years. Yeah, everything is still, as you said, not. it's not going to be a baseline for a while. Right, right. What piece of advice would you have for someone that wanted to start freelancing? Uh, networking is going to be as important as it is if you weren't freelancing. If you were just finding, just finding work in general requires a lot of conversations with people. And even if you're not networking to find jobs, you can still network to get advice or get support for what you're doing. And also just getting your name out there because there's only so much that like SEO can do or being a part of some kind of paid platform. (laughs) So definitely getting your name out there just organically and having conversations with people because I do get some work that are that are like referral based and those are important yeah would you say that makes up like a a large percentage of your work uh no not really but i think that it's really important to maintain these good relationships so that people are always thinking about you in a positive way but also talking about you in a positive way you do good work and then you'll get more good work Mm -hmm. more good clients yeah what about a more senior designer or illustrator what's something that you wish they could hear I would hope that they hear, please don't start anecdotes with when I was your age. That's a good one. It's, it's a big pet peeve of mine. And I've actually given a couple of like talks about in, like creating inclusive environments, particularly as they relate to creative environments. And this was a, a problem that I kind of ran up against at my last full-time job was you have these like multi-generational studios. And we've seen this before where uh, when the boomers started getting old, they took out all of their insecurities and frustrations on Gen Xers, called them the, you know, the lost generation. And I think every generation calls the next generation lazy. That's just something that we do to make ourselves feel better about getting old and not being able to keep up with technology. Which is just a, a fact, like the younger generations are so exposed to technology that their brains are learning faster. And biologically, there's no way that I can learn technology as fast as a Gen Zer. And that's fine. So a lot of like conversations or a lot of the ways that older folks in my last studio would respond to like new technologies or trends that they didn't understand was to like ridicule it and then follow that up with, let me tell you about something that was cool when I was young. And I'm like, do you not understand how you sound, how old you sound, how irrelevant you sound? And it always came from a place of one, being insecure and two, trying to make younger folks feel bad about themselves or maybe not bad, but wanting to feel as important as younger folks. And I I just think that there's a lot of insecurity that us, and I'm talking about myself too, like I'm in my mid thirties, like as I'm getting older, to not be so turned off by things that I don't understand. And even if they are just things like trends and platforms that I don't necessarily like or agree with. I need to come into these conversations and spaces with a little bit more curiosity and understanding rather than 
that's not how I did it when I was your age. What you're doing is bad. <laughs> that is what I wish all senior creatives would consider. There you go. I think you highlighted something that like is very palpable. My personal experience, like I, I watch Gen Z, you know, video edit on TikTok and I'm very intimidated by it. Mm. I'm like, how do they do this with just a, their phone tool? Like I have <laughs> formal education in video editing. I've been doing it for a long time. And then like, I couldn't even come close to doing that with a phone app. I'm so intimidated to even try. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's a really good point to also like kind of accept that and be brave in it to be like, it's okay that I don't know how to like edit videos on TikTok. No, and then, you know, we're just giving more work to, to young Gen Zers, <laughs> more video editors. Yeah, I'd rather be impressed by their creativity and their craft than be, you know, insecure about my own abilities to use the same tool. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it it's fine to have those gut reactions. Like when you mentioned like the videos, like how videos are edited on TikTok. And I also have a lot of like video design in like in the work that I do still. So I, I see these TikTok videos and I'm like, God damn, they're ugly. But I'm like, okay. I was just like, okay, so the way the way people are inserting themselves into these like the narratives that they're trying to share, the stories or like the things that they're trying to teach people. And I'm like, okay, well one, the way the way it's happening is or the, it looks the way it does because we're just using like the tools that we have. And I'm like, that's actually kind of like, that's good. Like people are just like getting their content out there without worrying about spending a ton of money on, you know, like green screens and lighting. So it is, a, so it's like, okay, well one, that's more accessible. And two, these trends are shaped because that's how folks are like digesting or ingesting the content, like a little bit more, like it's easier or it it just looks good to them in a way that I don't understand. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, it's like a a different aesthetic entirely. And like you said, like you don't we don't have to like it. <laughs> yeah, and then like I struggle because like I do I do want to call it ugly, but I also like I know a lot of folks probably don't think it's that ugly. So I'm like I I I wrestle with like, well what what do I call it? I know it's just different. But I'm, I still reserve the right to use ugly because I'm not saying it's bad. It's just, just ugly. And that's subjective. Do you think that's subjective? I think ugly is maybe subjective, but I'm curious if you feel the same way. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ugly is definitely like subjective. And I think that I'm looking at it from, a, a, I think we're both looking at it at a, with a video production lens and most people who are looking at it aren't. Yeah, it's. Uh, I like that you brought up it's the tool that they have access to because I do presentation design primarily and I like to talk about how PowerPoint for the majority of the working world, it's the only place they can visually communicate, the only place that they can put their ideas and their mind down on the screen in a slightly creative way. And mm. yeah, you get a lot of really ugly PowerPoint decks. I think that's like <laughs> what people think of when they think of PowerPoint decks. It's But yeah they're using the tool that they have access to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of, you know, more and more tools every day that are making it easier for folks to do that. The barrier to put out content like that and to 
share yourself or share your narratives is, you know, lowering, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A greater access is, is important. So mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of great qualities in our creative communities, but I think that there are peers of ours that are bigots. There's lots of bigotry. Mm -hmm. There's both conscious and unconscious biases. I think we find lots of white supremacy, lots of the patriarchy, tons of misogyny in creative fields, mm -hmm. sort of all, all the isms, <laughs> queer phobia, we could go on and on. What are your thoughts on it? How do we sort of combat this and keep the creative industries a, a little bit more welcoming and accessible? Sure. This is something that I thought about a lot. And I used to like I, I used to have to when I was working with AIGA um, I'm here in Portland. I'm a woman of color. There aren't many of us here. And I come from a place like L.A. where it wasn't it literally wasn't anything that I thought about. And it is it is not easy being a person of color in Portland. There there is overt racism, but what's worse is the subversive racism. Like all of the neoliberal democrats who vote blue and compost, they'll yell at you if you try and tell them what they're doing is problematic, not even racist. It's like you just say like, hey, that's not cool. And they'll just like, I'm not racist. I'm like, I didn't say you were. <laughs> it is one of the most reactionary communities I've ever been in. And I experienced that a lot at um, my last full-time job. There was so much, so much racism, so much misogyny. And I don't even call them homophobic. I just call them anti-gay. <laughs> the things that they would say. And they would also have like public facing things that they would say that would, it was almost, it was just very, it was a very insulting environment also. And some of the tools that I used to get by, uh, one was to, I think it's important to educate yourself so that you can recognize all of the things that are happening around you and kind of what they mean and you know help me it helped me understand like my place in the dynamic of just being surrounded by white people i was the only person of color for like when i first got hired i was the only person of color for a while and Another really important, I don't call it tool, I guess strategy is to find peers or allies. I think it's probably one of the most important things. I've tried to have a lot of conversations with folks about like, what are like actionable things I can do? And I'm like, if your leadership is the one who has a lot of the problematic behavior, like there's, there's nothing you can do. You could put up with it. You could speak up and get fired <laughs> or you could uh quit but if you know leadership isn't on board and they're not willing to listen or change like there's nothing you can do so in order to survive you need to find people who could listen to what you're saying like you need a sounding board if you need at the very least someone to just hear you out and tell you that yes what you heard happened yes that's not cool and just someone to commiserate with also. 
Because in these environments, when oftentimes you're outnumbered, you're at the mercy of your, of like management and HR, you're going to be gaslit. And when you are the one who has a problem with how things are and how things have always been, it is exactly that you are the problem. And you are the reason that things aren't going smoothly. So you need other people, whether they're your coworkers or just other people who also work in creative environments. Other people who share your identifiers are also really important so that you have someone who can relate to you. But the hardest one is finding like actual allies. I was lucky to have uh, some really great allies who worked at my last studio who also hated it. <laughs> so we became uh, like a really tight group of just, uh, you know, we got to spend a lot of like close time decompressing and just just recognizing all of the things that happen day to day. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm, I'm glad you built that support system, but I'm also glad that you've left that environment. Oh, I was fired. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hopefully that's a good change. Um, it was a really good change, but it's just... Um, yeah. It's like, oh, that's also, that's also another story for another day, but I'll just end that anecdote by saying my separation letter said that I was no longer a good culture fit. <laughs> so I think we can continue to make the case against culture fits and the yeah. lack of importance in what they're really doing. I heard you say that's another story for another day, but I, I do think it's always important to like when people bring up culture fit to remind people that are less familiar with that conversation that like culture fit means monoculture and mm -hmm. um, that's bad. Yeah, I recently heard someone use the phrase like it's we shouldn't be worried about culture fit. Companies should be worried about culture growth and culture ads and the things that the individuals are adding to a company's culture rather than cherry picking those who are willing to conform. I really like that. That's a really important distinction. Me too. Who is one person that our listeners should know about? Ooh. Uh, one well, of my very good friends, their name is uh, Tatiana Mack. They are uh, an amazing journalist, designer, software engineer. And when I was the only person of color at that said studio, they were the second person of color. <laughs> and when I was like, I was very, very much conditioned to dismissing a lot of things that I had been that I'd seen or heard that I didn't think was appropriate or ethical. <laughs> Tatiana was the first person who would turn to me and tell me that things are not okay. I shouldn't have to put up with anything that I didn't feel wasn't right. And in a lot of ways, I love them. They're so great. And in a few days, they're going to be speaking at uh, TEDx Portland about an app that they are currently making. It's called Self-Defined App. And what it is, it is a crowdsourced, or not crowdsourced, yeah, I think crowdsourced, and open-sourced uh, dictionary 
that helps us catalog the evolving nature of the words that we use and with a particular focus on words that are problematic and have really problematic or racist histories. And so because of Tatiana, one word that I've been trying to not use, and this has been over the last, this has been like years in the making and I'm still, I'm still working on it, is not using the word dumb, which is an ableist, it's an ableist slur. And yeah, I do a pretty good job not using that word, but it happens. And I'll get to zero one day. And if I don't, that's also okay. But I'm trying. And I think that's the important part is that I'm trying. Um, so you should check out Tatiana Mac and um, the Self-Defined app. Great recommendation. I'm a huge Tatiana Mac fan. Yay. So really fantastic. Uh, what about reading? Do you have a book that you recommend? Ooh. Well, I don't read a whole heck of a lot. and But I'm not going to recommend Stephen King because that's the only fallback I have. When I first started uh, going self-employed, my friend Duncan, who uh, was also on the board of directors with me at AIGA, gave me a book called Run Studio Run by Eli Altman. And this fellow runs and founded a naming agency called 100 Monkeys. And he wrote a book where he interviewed a bunch of other, like, folks who founded studios and just wrote about the ups and downs of starting a studio, maintaining a studio, all of the workflows that you know are important, but you probably don't think of or want to do. And it's all focused on like running a creative studio. So this book helped me a lot to just kind of when I first went self-employed, just like, what do I need to be focusing on? And what, what are things that I don't know about? What things should I not be ignoring? So it's been a, it's been a really important book for me as a self-employed or a freelancer. I have not heard of this book. I'm very excited to read yeah. it, though. There you go. We will link it in the show. It's, it's interesting. I might have seen that cover before. I'm, I'm excited to read that. Thank you for recommending. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have to ask, though, what, what Stephen King book should everyone read? Ooh, well, my favorite is Misery. That's that's uh, one of the few, like, the I think I've read that book maybe three times. And a very close second is Pet Cemetery. That is, like, the, the actual scariest book I've ever read in my life. Great. Yeah, great recommendations. Thank you. Are there uh, ways that our listeners can support you? Ooh, so, I mean, right now you can check out my website, uh, weirdwonderful.club. Uh, that's where I keep a few case studies and some examples of the work that I've done as a self-employed person. I'm also starting a podcast with my spouse. And my spouse is also, if you're, if you, if anyone needs a podcast editing or audio engineering, maybe a theme song, my spouse is uh, uh, weirdwonderfulsound.com. I should double check that. But uh, together we are working on a podcast. Uh, It's called Mystery Simon Theater 3000. I love the name. And what that means is I had a VHS collection that was around 200 tapes. And overnight it grew to (laughs) 5,000. And there are around 3,000 unique titles. And I'm going to watch them all. And I'm going to talk about these tapes. And I'm going to talk about the box art. I'm going to talk about 
the trailers. This collection is so fascinating because they're not a bunch of direct-to-video movies. I mean, some are, but uh, most of these movies are like major studio movies with Oscar-winning actors and directors. And for sure, you have forgotten about most of these. For sure, you've never heard of some of the movies in these trailers, but they star people like Madonna <laughs> or or Cameron Diaz or Uma Thurman. They're just like people you know, and you've never heard of these movies that, that they were in. It's, it's a really, really fun collection. I'm just gonna try and watch like five a week. Wow. We'll see though. Even at wow. that pace, it'll take me like nine years to get through all of the tapes. <laughs> I love a long side project, honestly, especially like something that's serial, like a podcast where you can just kind of keep going, just keep going. Like you'll mm-hmm. never run out of VHS tapes to do that with. Yeah. And there's so much, there's just so much content. Yeah. And we've got the first couple of episodes recorded. Our trailer should be out by the time this podcast <laughs> drops. Yes. Yes. For the audience, if you, if you hear the trailer at the end of this show, it's because it was a we added it on, so <laughs> hopefully we have that at the end of the show. Also, I love your domain, your URL for your website. Really fun and one of my favorites. Oh, thank you. Are you looking for work right now for people to hire you as a designer? Sure, sure. Um, like I mentioned before, I'm trying to expand on my UX and uh, product portfolio. So focusing on that, but not exclusively. Like I'm still taking clients who need branding. Perfect. We'll send people that way other than your website and your soon launching podcast mm-hmm. are there other places you want people to find you uh let's see well you can uh interact with the podcast on twitter because otherwise i'm not super active <laughs> on social media my new social media is slack <laughs> fair um, very fair going back to that networking there's a lot of a lot of good networking to be happening on Slack. But on Twitter, I believe it's M Simon T3K. I'm posting photos of just like weird, weird movies that I'm finding or just interesting things that relate to uh, the tapes that I'm watching. And there are a couple of photos where you, you can see just a ton of tapes. Oh, and you know, earlier you mentioned that you'd done some talks before. Mm-hmm. Is there any way that people can see those online? Mm, not really. They've all been at like colleges. Yeah, like nothing that's, to the best of my knowledge, nothing that has ever been recorded. <laughs> okay, well, if you're going to do any more in the future, like let us know. Sure, sure. Simon, this was just such a, it was such a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? I mean, check out TEDx Portland. <laughs> um, and uh, vote. <laughs> things are pretty. I love how exhausted you sounded when you said that. Uh, things are really dire. It's really hard to focus on just like one single thing. I wish people would do more. Um, it gets complicated. Like, yeah, yeah, you can go vote. Or we could just not have a two-party system. I don't know. That would be great. You're lucky you got I think... out. I, I did leave the United States, yes. <sighs> living, living that dream. I kind of recommend it. 
yeah i i think i think you highlighted it well like voting is really important i think it's there's there's systematic issues that voting is not currently going to fix yeah i think one thing i wish i would see more of is better education around the candidates because the you know especially in primary seasons when there's like everyone is just infighting <laughs> um it's really hard to figure out which candidates are actually invested in your well-being and in your same interests here like here in portland uh someone created a website called pdx.vote and they do a really really good job of like digging through all of the information available out there and telling you which candidates are pieces of shit <laughs> and who lie and where they get their money from and like oh my god it's a lot of work and it's exactly what i wish more voters had access to is which candidates suck I'm going to check it out, even though I don't live there. I, I want to see that. Yeah, I think it's a good, I think it could be a really good model. And it was something that I've uh, talked about with my friends. One of my best friends, my my karaoke buddy is a, a civil rights attorney. <laughs> and we used to talk about just like, if only people knew about all of the open seats that no one is running for and all the incumbents who just get to kind of lay back <laughs> and not worry about their their elected positions because most of the people don't know don't know about these open seats and don't know about what these candidates are really doing and it's just such a big problem to try and tackle so we're we're doing it in baby steps here in Portland and I'm glad someone is taking that time and there are other people who are like monetarily investing and making sure that that project like succeeds Thanks so much again for being on the show. I had such a great uh, time talking with you. Yeah, this was really fun. I haven't had like this kind of a deep dive in a while. Hi, everyone. My name is Simon, and you're listening to Mystery Simon Theater 3000, a podcast that is documenting my VHS collection. I have somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 tapes, but around 3,000 titles. And what better way to make sure that I watch them all than public accountability and documentation? Visit msimont3k.com for a list of titles, and you'll see that there are lots of movies that you've heard of, seen before, or maybe even own. But there are so many, many major studio movies that you've never heard of or that you've completely forgotten about. And that is part of the magic of this collection. There are so many renowned or Oscar-winning directors and actors who made movies that did not survive the cultural zeitgeist. And I'm going to watch them. How is this going to go? Well, each episode, I'll discuss five tapes that are drawn at random via a random number generator. I'll tell you about the box art, I'll read the synopsis on the back, I'll highlight any pull quote reviews that are featured, especially if the movie got two thumbs up. Might even bring up those two old guys who argued about it. But the real gem of this collection are the trailers. The tapes in this collection don't hold a candle to the long forgotten titles that are in these trailers. Sometimes there's a trailer for a failed TV pilot, 
or a trailer for the movie soundtrack. But in my opinion, one of the most outrageous kind of trailers are the ones that are for the very movie you're about to watch. I'm looking at you, Alien Resurrection. Visit msimont3k.com to browse the catalog where I document the trailers I've seen and tell you which movies are worth rewinding.